kind of wave my arms around sometimes. It feels really different um, somehow beginning to speak to all of you sitting here at the beginning of a three-month course. It feels really different to me from the other retreats that I teach at all year, Um, feeling quite humbled and very honored to be able to be part of each of your three-month retreat. It's so rare and wonderful in this world to me to uh, spend time with people who are so committed to bringing some light into their lives and into the world. In whatever way you might phrase that to yourself, it's, it's quite an honor to be sharing this time with you. And I hope we can all keep coming back in our minds in the difficult times or in the kind of drudgery times, just the immensity of what each of you is doing, the immensity of the commitment that you're making to your path, to your freedom, to your awakening. Because a lot of the time this path is not an easy one. And that's something all of you already know, which is really, it's really great to be able to be spending time and talking with people who already know that. You know, when we're, when we're leading a retreat with a lot of people who are new to it, it's quite a shock. You might remember your first couple of retreats when you sort of began to get it, that it's not only is it not easy, it's not a bliss trip, and it doesn't necessarily just go into lighter and lighter and lighter modes of being until we float away, but we're really opening to the whole picture. So anyway, I'm very, I feel very honored and humble, and I thank you all for, for being here, being on the planet. Tomorrow night, when we begin the, sort of formally begin the full retreat, we will do it as we always begin retreats, by the taking of the three refuges, and the five precepts. So tonight I want to speak about the precepts as practice. Tomorrow I think Steve will speak about the refuges. So I want to address the precepts so that when we take them, hopefully it's not another sort of ritual that's nice and of course we don't want to harm one another and we'll take the precepts, get them out of the way and get on with the real work with what's really important. For to me over the years, working with conscious conduct, with uh, trying to live in this world with an attitude of non-harming, an attitude of connection, is becoming more and more profound for me. In some ways, it is becoming the practice in a way I never would have thought or expected in my early years of practice. So thinking about why do we come here? Why are we doing this difficult practice? What really matters? And, you know, I used to think I was coming to a retreat. Maybe I didn't put it quite so bluntly, but coming to a retreat for some more ecstatic states of mind, for some greater depth of seeing and clarity, for greater concentration. I mean, all of these are very wonderful. 
for, but somehow for something a little more spectacular than paying attention to my speech and actions. But the Dalai Lama has said that my religion is kindness. And for me, that's becoming not just a nice thing to say, but more and more one of the more profound expressions of understanding of, of true open-hearted wisdom that I have heard. It's so simple, but to me it encompasses such a breadth and profundity of the wisdom that comes from our practice. So working with the five precepts, commitment to conscious conduct is actually learning to actualize the depth of understanding of our interconnection, of our oneness, that who I am and how I speak and act affects all other beings and vice versa. That to really pay attention to how I speak and act in the world is to begin to actualize freedom. So in a way, working with the precepts, working with how and why we speak and act, really becomes a practice of freedom, an expression of our deepest possible understanding. So just in the way we do this practice, we practice from a foundation of loving kindness, from a foundation of compassion, beginning with how we, the attitude with which we meet ourselves in these three months, with which we meet our experience, the attitude of loving kindness and compassion with which we meet one another, especially with which we meet the staff and teachers. They really need to be met with loving kindness and compassion. (laughs) But that this becomes the framework for everything that we're doing here. And I found in myself that when I, in life or in retreat, it doesn't really matter. I'll talk about retreat right now since that's where we are. That in retreat for me, it's quite easy at times to lose track of, to lose sight of this broader foundation, this broader attitude of compassion or loving kindness to myself, to others, to experience or to just paying attention to how and why I do what I do and, and have the intention of practice can subtly turn into one of ambition or kind of a materialistic attitude that we can bring to achieve certain states or to experience uh, certain states of mind or to change the personality in certain ways. I mean, for years I practiced in order to come out and be this certain kind of wonderful, fantastic person, you know, loving and kind and filled with light. And, of course, everyone would notice that when I came out of retreat. And I'd sort of judge how good my retreat was by how kind of glowing I was at the end. Now, you might come out in a really glowing, loving space. Hopefully, as our understanding deepens, we do become more compassionate. But if our intention is to get that, then we're acting out of greed. We're not acting out of compassion to ourselves, but we're strengthening our sense of separation. So working with the precepts, these five very simple guidelines for behavior of not harming other living beings, not taking what is not freely offered, not misusing our sexuality to harm ourselves or other beings in the context of the retreat, of course, that we're we're being celibate. Fourth one is not to use speech in a way to harm ourselves or others. It's not lying, not using harsh speech, not using speech to divide, to create separation, between people and not gossiping 
are using idle chatter. Luckily, since we're in silence, that's a whole lot easier, at least outwardly, verbally. But we can still look at at speech in the little times that we talk here. I think that's one of the reasons interviews can be so intense sometimes, because just as the only 10 or 15 minutes that you're really speaking and so much goes on in that time that you can reflect about for days afterwards. And the fifth precept is to really pay attention to keeping our hearts and minds clear, not taking drugs or intoxicants that cloud the mind and heart that cause heedlessness. Again, here on retreat, that's a lot easier. Even if we only took these five precepts as blind rules, we didn't really pay attention to why we were doing it, but we just said, okay, I'm just going to follow these. What a difference it would make in the world. It would be so amazing. It's one of the reasons that a retreat space such as this comes to be such a sacred space. We're creating a very protected and sacred space here together simply by observing these five very simple guidelines for behavior. Even if you don't pay attention to why you're doing it, even if we just blindly obey them, we're giving each other such a profound gift, the gift of fearlessness, to know that we can be in this place, not be afraid of one another, knowing that we're not here with any intention to cause harm to one another. When I come back here after traveling, I live in a little cottage down the road, it's such a powerful experience to feel just in the world, so to speak, completely safe. We leave the keys in the car. I never lock my house, and I never have one thought that somebody's going to come in and take something or trash something. There's just this sense of care, of protection, of fearlessness that we're giving to one another. The Buddha advocated are paying attention to our speech and actions as a deep form of protection for ourselves. There's a real happiness that comes when we are being in the world in a non-harming way. Have you ever noticed that in yourself? When you're being with people and you're not being harsh and you're not taking things and you're not you know, actively wishing them ill, which, yeah, sure, that comes up in our minds, but the times that we're not, there's such a happiness that comes from it. So the Buddha advocated our following conscious conduct as a way to protect ourselves from the results of our unskillful speech and actions, protect ourselves from anger, from results coming to us from others, protecting ourselves from remorse, for when we've done something that's unskillful, often it comes back up again in our hearts, in our minds. This often comes up in a long retreat. And we're protecting ourselves from the suffering of that. And by protecting ourselves, the natural result is that we are protecting others. Again, we can't separate ourselves from others. The Buddha said once that All the joys and sorrows of beings come from their actions. All of our joys and sorrows come from our actions. When we are acting with care, from kindness, from a sense of our connectedness, from compassion, we are protecting ourselves from great suffering and giving others the gift of fearlessness. So even if all we did was relate to these precepts as five rules that we had to follow in order to be here and get on with the practice, even that would be great. But it wouldn't have the profundity, the great depth. It wouldn't be a practice 
of freedom, a practice of liberation, if that were how we were relating to it. What makes it so much deeper, what makes uh, working with our speech and conduct so much more profound is that, as you know, the, the heart of an action the seed of what makes our speech, our action, skillful or unskillful, skillful meaning leading to happiness, unskillful meaning leading to suffering. It's not like a good-evil judgment. But what, what makes it so skillful or unskillful is that the whole seed of action is in the intention, in the volition that leads to our movement of speech, our movement of action. So sila, which is the Pali word for virtue, for morality, or conscious conduct, sila, is a morality of intention or motivation. And when we begin to look at to bring mindfulness to our speech and actions, not so much focused on how it looks or on what the immediate noticeable result is, but when we look at the volitional force, the state of mind giving rise to the speech and action, that's where this practice of mindfulness of our speech and action becomes quite profound. And really interesting, too. I mean, it's much more interesting than to, to look at why I've said something unskillful than to just make another black mark. Oh, you blew it again. Bad. You know, oh, you said the right thing. Good. You know, that, that's not so interesting. But to see when I've said something that has brought a feeling of discomfort to myself or I see somebody else flinch, instead of just saying, oh, bad, you blew it again, I can really look at the motivation behind that action. That's where understanding really begins to percolate, where we really begin to viscerally experience the connection between myself and others, that it can't be separated. So what makes an action skillful in the Buddhist way of speaking of action is if the motivation, the volitional force, is arising from the skillful states of mind, such as non-greed in the sort of negative way of phrasing it, but that is not attachment, generosity, inner contentment, renunciation, or when our intention is arising from non-hatred, which is really compassion or loving-kindness or from non-delusion, which is really wisdom, clear-seeing, equanimity, awareness of our interdependence. And so an outer action might look like we're really doing the right thing. We could obey the letter of the precepts and have our intention be bringing suffering to ourselves. So, for example, I could not only not take what's not given, but seem to give something in a very generous way, but all my intention could be in wanting other people to see how generous I am, which is actually both a kind of a greed and a kind of a delusion of comparing myself and wanting to look good. So all the seed is in the intention. There's a little story about a, a Tibetan practitioner named Geshe Ben. <laughs> I don't think that's supposed to be funny, but it amuses me. One day, Geshe Ben was expecting a visit from a large number of his benefactors. That morning, he arranged the offerings on his shrine in front of the images of the three jewels, the images of the Buddha Dharma Sangha. He arranged his offerings particularly neatly. Examining his intentions, he realized that they were not pure and that he was only trying to impress his patrons. So he picked up a handful of dust and threw it all over the offerings, saying to himself, Monk, just stay where you are and don't put on airs. When his teacher heard this story, he said, That handful of dust 
that Ben threw was the best offering in all Tibet. So it's that kind of examining our intentions that makes bringing our awareness to working with the precepts, with conscious conduct, such an exciting and wonderful practice. It's what, rather than just observing rules, we're learning how to practice oneness, how in effect to express, to viscerally experience our oneness with each other, our non-separation. So when we relate to paying attention with integrity and commitment, I deeply believe that working with the precepts is a practice of freedom. And you can experience it for yourself, even in very small ways. We don't have to you know, look at the most horrendous so-called breaking of the precepts, but little ways. An example, just recently I was teaching at a retreat in New Mexico, and um, there's a, a group shared shower. And so I was in the shower, of course, everyone leaves their shampoos, and I was just examining, oh, that looks nice, that looks nice. And there was, it's one of my little fetishes, I like to try different shampoos. So there was one that looked really interesting that I hadn't seen before. And there's just this moment of the mind saying, oh, cares, no one will know, I'm sure she wouldn't care. And how easy it is to just go and do that. So I, but I noticed it. And sometimes having the precepts just as a set of rules can help us wake up. It's like, oh, right, I'm not supposed to take what isn't offered. That's one of the rules. But that can serve as a way to remind me to pay attention. So then in tuning into my own intentions, I could feel viscerally and in my mind the feeling of greed, that contraction of wanting, that sense of self really quite strong. You know, I need to try the shampoo. I mean, it sounds really ridiculous, but sometimes it's the ridiculous examples that that help us see what's going on because I couldn't get really too upset about whether I tried the shampoo or not. So feeling that contraction of self, that sense of real separation and grasping, it was suffering. And in the letting go of that, in the not trying the shampoo, rather than feeling deprived, oh, I can't do it because that's what the precept says, but in really letting go of of needing that shampoo, it's a movement from grasping and separation to really letting go into oneness. That sense of contraction moved into a sense of expansiveness, and luckily at that moment, not into a sense of pride, which would have been back into contraction again, but more just into right. This is here, we're all part of the same show here. That isn't mine to take, and I don't need it. And it really was a movement from suffering to happiness, from a sense of separation and contraction to uh, a glimmering of the potential of freedom, of the spacious expansiveness of a mind that's not obscured by craving and aversion. So in that, I mean, that's just a little example, but we can experience that way of relating to looking at our intentions and letting go of doing something that even if we don't know it at that time, at least we have this little list, oh, this isn't a helpful thing to do. And then pay attention to what changes when we, when we act from an intention of skillfulness, of non-greed, of renunciation in that particular case. It really is an opening into the potential of freedom, of clear seeing. And we have that potential over and over and over in all kinds of little speech and actions here. So this practice of relating to precepts moves from one of sort of blind obedience or trying to be good to a real movement of the heart where we get immediate feedback when we begin to move out of harmony with other beings and out of harmony with ourselves. When we begin to speak or act 
not from kindness any longer, but from some sense of me, separate, I need, I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, but somehow I've got to be taken care of at the expense of somebody else. So it begins to be an immediate feedback, kind of a, a mindfulness of cause and effect rather than a blind obedience to some rule. So for instance, like that time with the shampoo, or I notice it a lot, a lot in speech, which I don't know how it is for any of you, but for me, working with the precept of uh, wise speech, of right speech, is in some ways the, the most tricky, the most uh, difficult, because often I find I haven't had a moment to notice what my intention is before I say something. I don't know the intention. I don't even know what I'm going to say as it's coming out of my mouth already. So it's often that I get the opportunity now not to kind of think, oh, is that good or bad, but I have a tendency to caustic humor. And um, at times it can get a little bit out of control. And I can, more and more over the years, as soon as something's out of my mouth that's a little bit off or just a little bit uh, not so funny, I can almost in myself feel the flinching, the, the pulling back of the other person. And so I feel it in myself. And it's an immediate feedback, you know, that, that saying something unkind is harming myself in that moment at least as much and probably more so than it's bringing harm to the other person. It's an immediate feedback that I've moved out of kindness into self-interest. And right away, rather than going from that into judgment, which is just taking the same uh, kind of aversive intention and turning it back on oneself, that isn't any better. But instead of moving into judgment, to then begin to explore with mindfulness, oh, what was the intention behind that? Not with judgment, not with a view to making ourselves wrong, but with a view to understanding. You know, and very often I'll see, oh, there was some sense of uh, not feeling very good about myself and wanting to somehow be one up, or sometimes just an exuberance that gets carried away. Sometimes it's just uh, being in kind of a bad mood, all kinds of things. But that's rather than um, just continuing the aversion towards oneself by looking at the intention, by honestly seeing it with mindfulness, that's where, again, we naturally let go of that need to whatever it is, look better, of the attachment to the exuberance and wanting to continue it. So... Ultimately, mindfulness comes down to be the main precept, in some ways the only precept we need to really pay attention to. Thich Nhat Hanh says that mindfulness is the fundamental precept. He says, think of the precepts as a manifestation of mindfulness. When you're mindful, you are responsible. And then the precepts are not needed to dictate our behavior. And that's so true. When we're paying attention, as I was just saying with the speech, we don't need to have some list of rules. We know when we're acting from kindness, when our intentions are connected, when our intentions are coming from caring. And we know when they're not. And it's, it's really quite simple in that way. Another aspect of loving kindness, of compassion, as the framework for our speech and actions, as the framework for our practice. An aspect of these two states is that they are ultimately boundless. Compassion, loving kindness grow and grow, as it were, in almost spatially in a way, but they're boundless. They're not limited that certain people deserve compassion and loving kindness and certain people don't, or certain aspects of myself, certain aspects of my experience deserve to be met with compassion, but others are really no-no, get rid of them. Not at all. 
So compassion and loving kindness are boundless, profound, no limits, no separations. I find for myself, in relating this to working with the precepts, that taking any of the precepts, as I, as I look more deeply into my own relationship to that way of being in my life, and seeing and feeling the depth of our interconnectedness with one another and with all life in the world, that where do we draw the line? Where do I draw the line in working with a precept, for example, in not killing or in right speech? Where does that line draw? Just with the bare outline of what the words say, but that the boundaries between self and other just begin to melt away until the longer I've been paying attention to behavior, just to these simple five rules of behavior, the, the, the less I can perceive any kind of real boundary. The boundary used to just be me and how I was relating to the person or the animal immediately in front of me, or then maybe to the ring of people I know, or maybe to the group of all of us here. But because in this culture we live in, in this world, we have so much information about just human beings, if you just keep it to that, all over the planet, we can't really hide from even the intellectual knowledge that how we act is affecting beings in all parts of the globe. And so where do we draw the boundaries in working with these precepts? Where do we set the limits of our behavior? I find this a really fascinating area of exploration, one in which there isn't, I don't think, an answer that anyone can say, this is how it should be for you. But I've found for myself that it, well, it takes away any sense of cockiness I have, for one thing, to continue to explore how boundless each of these precepts is. It takes away any sense of arrogance that, oh, I'm really deeply at heart a kind person, or I'm going through life without harming anybody. I don't really have to pay too much attention to it. You know, I'm a good person. I don't mean to bring in as guilt, I'm not a good person. I'm just talking about taking away a sense of arrogance or thinking I don't have to examine this anymore. I don't kill beings. I know I don't kill beings. Let's move on to the second precept but to really see how boundless it is. Thich Nhat Hanh says that when we enter a meditation hall, we bring all of society with us. In a way, the suffering, the pain that we feel in our own heart is the suffering of all of society. And in some ways, I feel that's true in our practice here, and that's also how I relate to working with these precepts. So I just want to, in a couple of them, just try and give some examples of what I mean by exploring them in this way of, of boundlessness because they just seem to get more and more and more refined. Thich Nhat Hanh again is talking about in trying to really uphold each of these guidelines of behavior without getting judgmental to ourselves. It's essential that we experience don't expect to begin by being perfect because these precepts are very difficult, very difficult, but that we incline our mind in the direction of working towards being perfect. The Buddha said once, I'll see if I can find it. The Buddha said, I say that even the inclination of mind towards wholesome states is of great benefit. If even the inclination of mind is of great benefits, then what should be said of bodily and verbal acts that arise from such states of mind? Incredibly powerful, incredibly beneficial. But also to know that we can even just have the intention. Sometimes the intention doesn't make it past a thought, but still that's beneficial. So in looking at the first precept, for example, 
the precept of not killing. If you just take it as a blind rule without exploring more deeply, is it even possible to live a life on this planet as a human being on this planet and not kill? I mean, whenever we drive in a car, we're squashing countless bugs. Whenever we boil water, when we take antibiotics, you know, we're killing little bacteria. Where do we draw the line? And we, each of us have, you know, our own area that we're comfortable with. And I find for me, it necessitates to keep looking more deeply, keep looking more deeply. Because if it's just a blind rule, then I can say, well, forget it. You know, I just won't kill the big things, sizeism, you know. But little things that I can't see, then it doesn't matter. But if we look at it as intention, then it takes on a whole nother form, knowing that, you know, I can't drive without killing, but beginning to look at where we can look, at where I act from an intention of aversion or of ignorance, of just not wanting to know. How often do we, maybe we don't deliberately go out and kill things very often, but I find for myself, often, more often, anyway, there'll be times when I can see that I just don't want to know. I've used this example before. If I don't have my glasses on and I go to step into a shower, I can't tell what's on the floor. I can't tell if that little brown dot is just a piece of lint or it's a little spider. And I can see if I'm in a hurry in the morning or something, there's part of me that just doesn't want to know. And if I don't take the time to lean down and look and I turn on the water and I still don't know as it washes down the drain, that doesn't absolve me. That's an intention of delusion, of not caring, really, of thinking my own being, not feeling the sense of connectedness or the caring for life, if that was a spire. And not knowing doesn't, you know, save me from having acted in an unskillful way. And so I can pay attention to when I do something like that, even if I still don't know, but there's a feeling of separation There's that contraction of self making me more important, my 10 seconds of time that I save by not looking down, you know, somehow making me more important, more separate. And there's a real uh, kind of shutting off of the world, a contraction that's actually suffering in that moment. Of course, there's other times when we do know, and it's a real dilemma. And that's where each of us has to look very carefully to consciously do what we need to do. I know some of you, some of you might have been here some years ago when we were having the beginnings of our uh, ongoing relationship with the cockroaches here at IMS. Because in the first years, we didn't have any cockroaches for some reason. And some years ago, we began to have a real infestation And it's the kind of thing we went through so much, trying to find ways to work with it. I remember numerous staff meetings, board of directors meetings, teacher meetings, you know, discussing every which way. We called in um, insect psychics from Vermont, you know, to try and send them out. And, you know, we all made a vow for some period of time every night. We would all do loving kindness to the cockroaches, asking them to leave. You know, we went on. This one, I don't know how long this went on, at least a year, you know. And, and in the meantime, it was really getting out of control. And we run a center that has to be certified by the Board of Health and all kinds of things like that. So what to do? And as you can imagine, as many people as there were are, that's how many different opinions there are about what to do. You can see we're faced with these dilemmas in our life. And sometimes um, we might each meet them differently. So it's to, to bring in a real awareness of our intention, bring it as much into our heart, into light as we can, and then do whatever our particular decision is at that time. Another time, I was a manager here and the house across the street that staff lives in now, we used to rent it to friends. And um, 
for some, for some reason, the couple that lived there had gone away for a week or two. And I went over to get something, and the, the house was just infested with fleas. I walked out, and really my legs were covered with fleas, just having been in the house for a minute. It was really, you know, you couldn't live there with it like that. So again, it's the dilemma of what to do, what to do. And um, who would take the responsibility of calling the exterminators, because that's what it came down to. And I felt that was my duty to do that, and I did that. And I, you know, I can't really say what all the karma is, but I felt that I, that was something that I had to do consciously, and I had to do it looking at the bigger picture that we were responsible for that, that building. Um, and other people might have made other decisions. So there's that level. Can we live as human beings in the way that we live without ever taking life? And then there's the level of how do we relate to the decisions that we've made. I've met people who are vegetarians out of a deep commitment from not wanting to kill animals, but that are so enraged at people that do eat meat um, that the violence that they're suffering in themselves, you know, in holding to that view and in blaming other people, that's also violence. That's also hatred. That's also giving rise to the intentions of separation and anger. You know, and really looking at that. This is from Aitken Roshi. Practicing compassion goes hand in hand with practicing realization. On your cushions, you learn first of all to be compassionate toward yourself. I can recall occasions when I was sitting in Zazen with my mind a turmoil of murderous thoughts and feelings. Perhaps you have had such experiences also. We vow to save all beings, but how do you save the roughnecks in your own mind? Treat them as neighbors who come to the door when you are meditating. Oh, there you are, you violent thought. With this recognition, you are at ease with yourself because you are no longer blindly responsive to your thinking and feeling, and thus you are no longer at the mercy of your karma. So in a way, greeting the violent thoughts that come, the thoughts of harming, the thoughts of killing, that might seem distant now, but I happen to know from personal experience of people who, well into a retreat, had definite murderous thoughts and visions of people sitting around them for whatever particular obscure reason it might have been. Oh, there you are, you violent thought. In that moment, we're meeting it with compassion. In that moment, the intention of violence, the intention of anger and hatred has been shifted to the intention of compassion, to the intention of acceptance. This is not a small thing. Because each time that the intention shifts, that we can move from the violence to the, even the inclination towards kindness, that's the beginning of actualization, of understanding. It's a huge thing. And we have many, many, many moments when we can experience this. So just with this one precept, you can see how it gets very kind of subtle and profound. It also stretches out boundlessly in all directions. How do we define killing? Thich Nhat Hanh is really wonderful, I find, in the way that he quite naturally seems to see the interconnection of one act with all acts in life. So, for example, something I think about is I wonder if there's ways that I support uh, violence in entertainment, for example, if I go and pay to go to violent movies, or if I enjoy watching violent TV shows or reading violent books, it's a question I have. Is there a way that I am contributing to the ongoing violence and the increasing violence in our culture? I don't know, but it's something that I feel I have to look at very deeply. Or when I'm too lazy to do some bit of recycling, 
Am I, am I contributing in that moment to killing a portion of our environment, to actually killing some of the sustaining um, force of nature that's supporting all life on this planet? You know, I don't know. But it can get very profound. In talking about vegetarianism again, just the, the sense of if I eat meat because cattle take so much more grain to feed than, it, than if the grain was just used to feed people, am I, in eating a hamburger, actually contributing to starvation in Africa? I don't know if that direct correlation can be made, but that's one way of exploring the parameters of really trying not to have intentions of killing or harming other beings. Just looking at the ways that my mind creates a sense of us and them. You know, whether the us is meditators versus not meditators, whether us is my family versus outside people, whether us is two friends versus somebody else who looks dangerous walking down the street. A couple of years ago, my uh, partner and I were in Thailand and we met uh, a young man traveling who was from Croatia. He was a, a Croat. And he's just, a, you know, he just seemed like any of the travelers that you meet in Thailand from anywhere. But just we were on the train and he was reading the paper and it was about some, of course, something going on in Bosnia and some particular battle between the Croats and the Serbs. And the Croats had won this particular battle. And he, he, just in this instant, he changed from just being kind of an average guy. He was cheering the way some people I know cheer football games. But he was cheering about, you know, how the Croats had won this battle, and it was so great. If I just hate all Serbs. And this was said with so much vehemence, you know, so much real fear and vitriol and separation. It was shocking to me. But of course, more shocking is he was just, you know, he's just sort of in a battle zone. But that's not something that I'm unfamiliar with. I find ways that my own mind sets up divisions and distinctions between us and them. It's creating fear and separation and the need for some kind of action to get what I need and protect myself. Is that promoting violence in the world? Is that promoting harming other beings? I think so. So it really gets quite, quite intricate. And I, not to look at any of this with a sense of blame or self-judgment, or again, remember what Thich Nhat Hanh said, it's not about expecting to be perfect. If we don't expect to be perfect, it opens up the range to really be willing to look. So the second precept, very similar, not taking what is not given. Well, that's the sort of easy way, but if we turn it around and make it more positive, a more positive way of expressing it, to me this precept is really pointing us to the possibility of living with inner contentment, with a real sense of knowing that just what there is here is enough. I don't need to take something else to find perfection or happiness or contentment. Dogen said, who was a great Zen master, the self and the world are just as they are. The gate of emancipation is open. Not taking what is not given turns around to can we live? And this three months is a great opportunity to play with this idea. Can we live in this sense of inner contentment? The self and the world are just as they are. The gate of emancipation is open. In that space, no thought of needing to take what isn't offered even arises. If I were in that space of inner contentment, when I see that shampoo sitting there, I don't think, oh, I wish I could have it, but I can't give it up and feel deprived. The thought doesn't arise. Oh, that looks like a nice shampoo. And it just sits there. There's no sense of neediness that needs to come up because there's not a sense of incompleteness. Again, this is opening to the potential of freedom. In our retreat here, 
this inner contentment, it's another way I look at renunciation. We can tend to think of renunciation as a deprivation, as a kind of a hardship on ourselves. But really, when it's the space of inner contentment, it's the greatest happiness. And that's what we can practice here in not taking what is not given. You have a lot of chance, even more here than you might have other places, to look at, is it possible to find contentment with what is given? That can be the food. It's rare that you spend three months with no control over the food that you're given to eat three times a day. This gets to be a really big deal. It's, it's a lot. And, and when we're going through a difficult time, food is a great place to sort of displace all that energy. I remember oh, my first few years of long retreats where I would have I would just be thinking about if only I could have a big chunk of cheddar cheese or something or a piece of bread, stuff that normally I don't even have to think about. And so much mental energy would go into wanting this piece of cheese or whatever it was. So much suffering. In a way, as Aiken Roshi says, it's almost like stealing from ourselves in that moment. We're stealing from ourselves the potential for peace the potential for recognizing happiness in that moment because we're throwing all our happiness out onto the piece of cheese or the rice cake or whatever your particular mind might dream up about what would make you really happy if you had it. So that's okay the mind does that. We have the precept to stop us from actually going into the walk-ins in the middle of the night and taking it. But a friend of mine has a great story from years ago. He was manager here back 15 years ago, so this was nobody here. Nobody here is involved in this story. (laughs) He went in to the the walk-in refrigerator. It was like late at night. And there was a a yogi in there with his hands in the dried figs or something (laughs) like that. And my friend said, oh, can I help you? Being polite. And the guy says, uh, I'm just looking for the maintenance office. (laughs) Before we get that far, I mean, nothing, nothing horrible would happen, you know. But before we get that far, open to the potential for letting go and seeing that it's not deprivation. It's opening us up to the possibility of freedom, you know, to let go of the fig or the cheese or whatever. And, I mean, it can be hard here, and there's a lot of opportunity for that with food, with rooms, with your yogi job meditation. You know, that there's a way we're all um, giving to one another through our renunciation. And there will be times, believe me, when something is just going to seem like it has got to be fixed. It has got to be given. And if it's not given, I've got to take it because I can't make it another day. When your mind gets into that mode, we'll talk more about it later, we call it yogi mind, just give it a couple of days. Don't trust it right away. Don't necessarily believe that's the true path of happiness, whatever that thing is. But maybe then you can remember the precept. Oh, yeah, don't take what's not given. It's not just a rule to make things easier for the people who run this place. It's a guideline for my liberation. And we can open up and explore in that way. And again, not taking what's not given, where do we draw the lines in the world? I read this article in the New York Times from, I think it's a couple of years ago, a population conference in Cairo, talking about food, of course, and the shortages of food that's coming up. And another one is water. Um, Someone from the uh, president of World Watch Institute was saying, we've entered a new era, one in which satisfying the needs for seafood, for example, of 90 million people being added each year, 90 million people each year, Satisfying their needs for seafood requires reducing consumption for those already on Earth. Satisfying the demand for grain also means reducing the consumption 
of those already here. So if that's true, that doesn't necessarily mean I should starve myself to death. But to me, it does entail looking at, you know, that salmon spread I had the other night for dinner. Did I have a choice? Is that actually reducing the consumption for somebody else? And there might be times I really need it and times I don't. And to, to bring more awareness to that. Or being out in New Mexico just recently, which is like Los Angeles, it's basically a desert. Actually, that blows me away that Los Angeles is a desert and how much water is needed for how many people there. Or in New Mexico, water is going to be a major uh, difficulty in the upcoming years. And to have a really nice garden someplace like that literally means taking water from other people. And there isn't enough to go around. So it's not to be guilty, but it's to, to really, for me, to look at how I use resources and, and to look at why, when I don't look at how I use resources because I just want to be comfortable or because I can't be bothered. Again, delusion. And to see how different it feels when I do pay attention. It's not, again, a giving up of self-denial of some kind of uh, harshness or self-hatred. You know, I will never turn the heat on again in the winter because that takes away, you know, fuel from other people. I mean, that's ridiculous. I couldn't live in this climate if I did that. But when I turn it down a little bit, if I turn it down a little bit, (laughs) to see that that's not a deprivation, but that's an actualization of my sense of connection with the earth, with other beings, that it's actually a movement of love and compassion, not a movement of deprivation. It's quite, uh, for me, a wonderful way to look at how I act. And it is an actualization of, of our interconnectedness, of coming out of the obsessive self-referencing that is happening when we're, when we're going against the precepts and to come out of that obsessive self-referencing into a sense of acting with kindness. Because at bottom, we all just want to be happy. We're all the same in that. And if I do what makes myself and others happy, life works. If I think I'm making myself happy by taking from others, nobody's happy. That's the gift of mindfulness that when we pay attention to what we do and why we do it, we begin to discover that what we thought was making ourselves happy, taking more things, you know, working in this consumption, this consumer economy, which just seems to act by making us want more things. I get the New York Times on Sunday, and it's just page after page of new things to want that we never even heard of before. But, you know, you can come away, wow, I've really got to have that. Moving out of that sort of self-referencing, thinking that's what makes us happy, and seeing that acting out of kindness for all beings is what truly makes us happy. It's a wonderful, wonderful practice. I always do this. I only got through two precepts. So just extrapolate this to the other three. (laughs) For here, sexuality, we don't have to work with too much at all. Hopefully at all. We're not working with it while we're here. All I want to mention about, well, I mentioned what the four, the four aspects of wise speech. I just want to say them again. It's not lying, not using harsh or abusive speech, not uh, using divisive speech, like two people talking and putting down a third person, or trying to come between two people out of jealousy or whatever, and not gossiping, just kind of idle and frivolous talk. And I read as uh, one Tibetan teacher, Pachal Rinpoche, says, when you really look at gossip that just seems to arise spontaneously and it seems sort of harmless, really look at the intention. How often is the intention fueled by craving or aversion or hatred? Or for me, I would also add conceit, the needing to make oneself feel better or put oneself down. Just look at the intention behind gossip. So working with our intention, 
with a real commitment to kindness to ourselves and to others. And using these precepts as guidelines is, is sometimes I feel this in itself is such a profound practice that it would begin to encompass all the rest. We can really learn how to rest at ease in ourselves, in whatever's happening with other beings, and to feel quite viscerally, to actually experience that when we come in the meditation hall here, we do bring all of society with us. And quite literally, none of us is practicing for ourselves alone. That in some way, we're practicing for all beings. We're practicing for the planet. How we really come to understand ourselves in the world is going to manifest in the way that we relate to ourselves in the world through our speech and through our actions. It can't be a more powerful way to express our understanding than that. There's one last line from the Buddha. These five precepts are a vehicle of happiness, a vehicle of good fortune, a vehicle for liberation. Let our virtue therefore be purified and shine forth. Let's sit for a moment. (laughs) 